0: Open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go through the whole chapter, verses 1 to 13. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, one of our favorite shows on TV is Shark Tank. And partially because uh, it's one of the few clean things that you can actually watch, uh, that's part of it. And the other is it's always interesting and it's always fascinating to see what people come up with and what kinds of inventions and what kind of businesses they start. And if you ever watch that show, you know that one of the main questions that keeps being asked to the people that come on is about their numbers. There's a point where every presentation will eventually get down to the numbers and they'll ask, all right, let's talk about the numbers. And so they'll begin quizzing them about various aspects of their business or their idea and the central premise of those questions is that knowing the business inside and out determines your vested interest in its success or failure and so one of the worst things that someone can can do on shark tank i've come to find out is say i'm not sure I don't know that number off the top of my head. Oh, that's bad news. You immediately kind of clench up and you think, oh, this is not going to go well for them. They're going to be told that they're a cockroach and they need to get out, right? <laughs> but it's, it's knowing the business inside and out is key because it tells the investors what your vested interest is in the success or failure of the business or the idea that you're presenting in our passage this morning, Paul is commanding the church of Corinth to remove someone because of rampant sin in their life. And we've talked about in the, in the previous weeks, last week and, and, and before, about how we're a family and we've come together as a body of believers, and that's what membership in the body of Christ really is. And here Paul is saying, kick that guy out. We get to the topic of church discipline, which is always uh, an uncomfortable topic of discussion, but let's look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not... Those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for this text that's sitting in front of us, as uncomfortable as it might be from time to time. As we think about the ramifications of it, we pray for your help to understand it and apply it to our own lives, the life of this congregation here that we may be changed having encountered you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, um, we've been going through, for the last few weeks, a series on the church, the DNA of the church, what is core and vital to the church. If you're joining us for the first time or if you're not regularly in here, um, just to let you know, this isn't our typical diet. What we're normally in is... The book of Matthew, and we've been in the book of Matthew for some time now, and we will be getting back to the book of Matthew, but to lay a foundation before we go back into Matthew chapter 18, I felt like a series on the church and understanding the, the DNA, what makes up the church, what we're really doing here together would be very important, and so we're doing that. And so last week, we dealt with the nature of church membership, that we as the people of God have been brought together together. As part of the family of God and as part of the body of Christ, we've been put together as a local assembly. And so we said, or I said last week, that bringing sinners into his family has been what God has been doing since the beginning of time, particularly since the fall of mankind. Ever since then, it's been a story of redemption that has been playing out over the pages of Scripture as God has been bringing people into His family over time. And He has accomplished this in the person and work of Jesus Christ, so that there is no membership in the kingdom of God, there is no membership in the family of God or as the body of Christ, apart from trust in the saving work of Christ alone. That's it. There is no other way. And there never will be another way. Now, with that, there is clearly a sense of purpose that comes to the body of Christ, that comes to us as a church. There's a sense of purpose there. It tells us a a few things. First, that we are here to worship God primarily. We come here as members of His family to give to Him what He is due, honor and worth and praise. But then it also tells us that as a member of the family of God, as members one to another, that you're here for the person sitting next to you. You're here for the other people in this room to edify, to correct. You're here for them. You're a member of the body of Christ. But two weeks ago, we saw that There's something that happens first before you become a member of the body of Christ, before you become a member of His family. There is first a transforming work of the heart that the Spirit does. Because only God can raise men and women from the dead. That's exactly how Paul describes this in Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and only God can make you alive he says. So the Spirit comes in and t- does that transforming work. In the words of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he removes the heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. So you go, what that means is you go from being one who is unable to please God because you are without faith. So you're, you're unable to please him. He gives you that heart of flesh, meaning you are now by works able to please him because you now have faith based on the transforming work that the spirit has done so then as a step of initiation into the covenant community into the family of god you out of that work of that the holy spirit has done on your heart you come forward and profess faith and repent of your sin and you seek to join the church by baptism that's what we do we go into the waters of baptism some Time later, and you go under the water and you come up. And in that process, you are making an oath to the congregation that you are standing in the water in front of. You're swearing an oath to them and you're promising death to the old life, that the old life is being buried in the water. And up from the water, you are pledging to that same congregation that you are going to walk in newness of life. My heart has been transformed. It is new. It is different. The Spirit has done a work here. The church body is affirming that on their part. They're saying, yes, we see the fruit in your life. And they're affirming that work of the Spirit as best as they can tell. That it's genuine. And you're coming forward as a baptismal candidate, going into the water, pledging before that congregation, that now that the Spirit has changed me, I am dead to the old life and I am walking in newness of life. So there's already beginning through those, that's, that's pretty much a review of what we've talked about so far, but there's already beginning to be in our understanding of the church a few important points that I just want to make sure we understand. I'm just going to list these out so that we can just all understand them and they're there on the screen for us. First, the way one enters truly into the body of Christ is by the Holy Spirit reviving their heart through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. That's the way one truly enters into the body of Christ. Now that is a work that we cannot see, we cannot look at, at the heart of a man. We don't know for 100% certainty because we can't see their heart the way God does. But that is the one the way one truly enters into the body of Christ, is that the Holy Spirit has revived their heart through the preaching and teaching of the word. Second, the way one publicly enters the body of Christ is through baptism. The way one publicly enters into the body of Christ is baptism. They get in the water, and that's where they make that change that they have seen and that or they have. they they know has taken place and the body has seen evidence of. That's the way they make it public is through baptism. Third, the person being baptized has demonstrated the fruit of being indwelled by the Spirit and they are pledging an oath to the congregation that he or she will live a life consistent with kingdom values. That's what they're doing. They're coming forward and they're saying, This is true. The congregation is saying, we've seen the demonstration of that fruit coming out in your life and the pledge is to live a life of kingdom values. Now all of this is laying a foundation for how we even begin to understand 1 Corinthians 5. We will not even begin to understand 1 Corinthians 5 if we can't understand these foundational truths. Because if the church, as it's said so often, if the church is a business, or if membership in the church is like joining a local gym, then 1 Corinthians 5 makes absolutely no sense. Why would you kick a person out who's paying their dues? I want to add one more thing to the foundation here. Christians, when it comes to the local church, Christians don't so much join local churches as... Submit to them. When you believe in Christ, when the Spirit has changed your heart, you're a member of the body of Christ globally. But when it comes to us as a local assembly, what are you doing? Well, we normally call that joining the church. But what we mean by that is you're submitting to the church. This is a command to the Christians in the book of Hebrews as it pertains to the congregation and their leaders when he says this in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for for that would be of no advantage to you. So submit to your leaders. They're coming forward in membership and they're submitting to the leadership of that church. But this is also Paul's command to the church at Ephesus in regards to the other members in the congregation. He says this in Ephesians 5, 18-21. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what we call joining the church is a process whereby a member of the global body of Christ submits himself or herself to the leadership of the church and to the fellow members of the church. You're coming forward in submission to them. Now, why would he or she do that? Why would you come forward and submit to a pastor and to the rest of the church members? And it's it's very simple. And we've talked about this at length because they're, they're at that local congregation. He or she hears the Word of God preached and recognizes that that is the thing that's able to teach her or him and train them in righteousness and in good works, and prepare them for the works that the Lord has for them. So there he receives accountability. He receives someone watching after his soul, pointing out sins in his own life, encouraging him to walk in accordance with truth. There, he or she receives discipleship from the community around. Now, it's possible after all of that, which is essentially a review of what we've been talking about up to this point, that you're on the edge of the mental cliff and you're thinking to yourself, I'm getting ready to check out, baby, all right? How about an illustration that might coax you back to the party or it might give you a swift push in the back? I'm not sure which one it's going to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to coax you back. The local church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. The local church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. If you go to a foreign country and you visit the capital city of that country, you're likely to see embassies all around with different flags and everything hanging out in front. And you're going to see all of these representing different countries, obviously, Now, the territory on which the U.S. Embassy sits in London belongs to the United States of America, not to London, not to the U.K. The U.S. Embassy represents in every way, no matter what country it's in, the U.S. Embassy represents in every way the United States of America, even though it sits in a foreign country. God's people are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. As we gather together as a body, we are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We are set in the midst of a foreign land. We'll call it Babylon. That's what the Bible calls it. The difference is that what makes us an embassy is not our building. It's not our property. It is by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us, dwells within each of our members, so that individually He dwells in us and together He dwells with us. Individually, we are then ambassadors of Christ because the Holy Spirit goes with us wherever we go. And together, we are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. So when someone comes in and says, I want to submit to the leaders and the members of this congregation. They're basically telling you and they're telling me that I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. They're saying, the Holy Spirit gave me a passport. He's the only one that can issue passports. He gave me my passport. And so then, naturally, as the embassy it's our job, what would we do? We would ask for proof that you really are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So the embassy is responsible then to examine the fruit of this person coming forward expressing a desire to join with the local body. And we're responsible for examining the fruit. Well, what would be the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of said candidate? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, to name a few. Those are a few, but then there are more. Repentance and faith would be foremost among the fruits that the Holy Spirit would produce. If He has revived them and brought them back from the dead and given them a new heart, then repentance and faith, you would assume, would naturally follow after that revival of the heart. So then we expect to see repentance and faith being a part of their very nature. So these are prerequisites for submitting to a local church and to local pastoral leadership. In fact, anyone that comes forward as a candidate for either baptism or membership in our church, I sit down with and we talk about those very things. What do you believe about the gospel? Tell me the gospel in your own words. Tell me your testimony. How did you come to believe said gospel? And from those things, not only do I want to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but I also want to hear that I have struggled with sin and Christ has made me aware of that sin. God has made me aware of that sin. I have repented of that sin and I continue to repent of that sin on a daily basis. Those are prerequisites to joining the local church. There must be evidence of the Spirit's indwelling. They must be born again. Now, we have these categories established. And I think it's going to help us understand where Paul is coming from in 1 Corinthians 5. When it comes to what we would normally call congregational authority, or perhaps you may hear it said, congregational rule, many Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, we'll talk about that congregational rule, congregational authority, but very few actually know what it means and most cannot defend it from scripture. So here today we're going to talk about it. This is what congregational authority, congregational rule really comes down to. There's only one point in this sermon and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. So there's one point and some subpoints. Should say. And the point is this, that God's people have kingdom authority, responsibility, and obligations. There's lots of things you could say about 1 Corinthians 5. Tons of things we could talk about. We could spend weeks doing so, but just to give a, just on the surface of this text God's people have kingdom authority responsibility and obligations and Paul is communicating that to the church at Corinth here so Paul is writing to the Corinthian church a church that he helped establish and he's being stern with them in fact in the previous chapter just a paragraph before our uh, passage that we're reading he's he tells them flat out that he is reprimanding them in his writing as a father would reprimand a child and the reason that he is upset with them is because there is rampant uh, sexual immorality among them. And we're told specifically what it is. A man has his father's wife. I think we're to assume that that means his stepmother. But you need to understand that the problem here in the Corinthian church is actually not with the man. The problem is with the church. The man, Paul is going to really define as an outsider. And he's going to suggest that they turn him over to the outside world. What have I to do with judging outsiders? He's an outsider. The problem, Corinth, is that you tolerate it. Why on earth would you do that? In fact, he says they should be mourning the sin of this man. But instead, they're tolerating a kind of sin that even pagans think is out of bounds. How is it, is his reasoning, how is it that an embassy of the kingdom of heaven does not see that what he is doing is sexually immoral and is evidence of the fact that he is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And how is it then that in spite of this evidence, in spite of the fact that he's showing you a fraudulent passport, that you continue to let him dwell among you? So by the church doing nothing, think about this for just a second. By the church doing nothing, it's as if they are saying to the world around them, the world of Corinth that's watching the church at Corinth, It's as if they're saying this man here is an example of the kind of fruit that the indwelling Holy Spirit produces. They're saying this, look world, this, this man right here, this is what it looks like to be an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit, it turns out, produces the fruit of sexual immorality. That's what the church at Corinth is Telling the world. So Paul proposes a solution to the problem. And that is for the man to be removed from the the assembly. Now, he's going to explain what that means in just a moment, but first we need to think back to eons ago when we were in the book of Matthew, because there we see that the authority of the congregation to exercise discipline comes from Christ. Christ. The authority of the congregation to exercise discipline comes from Christ. Remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus blesses him and says in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now there are many that will get this verse twisted in all sorts of different ways particularly in Roman Catholicism which basically teaches that heaven that what this verse says is that heaven is reacting to what the church does so it basically oh, there's a lot to it but what, what, what Roman Catholicism is basically teaching is that heaven is reacting to what the church does so peter you have the keys of the kingdom What you bind on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we're waiting on your decision. And so Peter and all of his successors, which we would call today the Pope, they say, has the authority and the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. So we get several doctrines that spring from that in Roman Catholicism, like purgatory and various other kinds of things that are all derivatives of this central passage. And what that then means also is that if you're not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, then you are essentially bound. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's not, I don't think, what Jesus is actually saying here. The translation that appears in most of our uh, texts you may even have a note on the translation. It says, it, probably if you have an ESV, I think even NIV says this, whatever you bind will be bound whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven like it's a future tense well if you bind it then then heaven will bound will bound it as bind it as well like it's future tense and that would lead you to think like the roman catholics do that heaven is responding to whatever the church does however Jesus' actual words are a little bit more complex than that The meaning is probably something more like whatever you bind on earth will have been bound. It's not just a future. It's what is technically called a future perfect, which means will have been bound in heaven. And you may see a footnote that tells you exactly that in your Bible. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that His presence is going to forever be with the church. And they then, as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, will be collectively, as they gather together and make a pronouncement, they will be collectively reflecting the will of heaven, particularly when it comes to binding and loosing on earth. Now, what does it mean to bind and loose? If only Jesus gave us some more teaching on that. Well, wouldn't you know, just two chapters later in chapter 18, he's going to do exactly, exactly that where he talks to the group of disciples, not only Peter, but all the disciples that are there. But this time, he places it right in the context of disciplinary action against someone who has sinned when the church comes together and exercises discipline on someone who has sinned and remains unrepentant and Jesus explains this in Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20 where we'll be in just a few weeks he says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if... Two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where I, where two or three are gathered in my name there I am among them so the binding on and loosing here in the text is in response to someone's unrepentant sin and the disciples as a whole are going to establish the church on the foundation of Christ, and it will be responsible for making disciples and teaching them to obey all that He has commanded them. And in the process, when someone demonstrates an unwillingness to repent from sin that's been pointed out to them, having been warned about it time after time by individuals, by a small group of people, collectively by the body of Christ the whole church together, and they still won't come to repentance, then the church is responsible for removing them from the gathered assembly. And he assures them in that often quoted verse that's usually ripped out of context where two or more are gathered, two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He actually is talking about two or three Christians that are gathered together in agreement over exercising church discipline on someone in the congregation. Paul even explains this in our Corinthians passage in verse 4 where he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. They have the authority by virtue of the fact that they are called by Jesus' name. They have that authority. But you need to understand This is not just an authority that is given to the church. It's a responsibility that's given to the church. It is a a mandate, if you will, given to the church. The responsibility of the congregation is to weed out willful, unrepentant sin. That is the responsibility of the congregation. Look at how Paul talks about this problem in the Corinthian church. He says in verse 2, Ought you not rather to mourn? So we understand right at the very beginning of this passage that Paul's words to them are not suggestions. They're commands. And there's a sense to them that the church should have been already doing this long before. Why do I have to write you a letter telling you this? Shouldn't you know this already? Shouldn't you rather mourn over his sin? Why haven't you done this already? Why are you not mourning the sin in your own congregation? Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, when we are going through the Beatitudes, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who mourn. And I said back then that, more, that the mourning that's depicted there is mourning over your own sin and mourning over the sin in the world around you. And so here is Paul reiterating that same concept Ought you not rather to mourn? You should be mourning such sin in your congregation, not celebrating it. But he goes further as to the reason in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So the responsibility of the congregation is to weed out willful and unrepentant sin in their midst. And the reason is because just like yeast, the sins of one slowly spread to the sins of another. And quickly, over time, the whole congregation begins to tolerate The sins of others because they've made peace with their own sins. Because that's the reality, right? Well, this person sins and the church does nothing about it. The thing that they say they believe, they don't actually believe because here is one over here who's sinning rampantly and we do nothing about it. And so what does that say to this person over here? Well, no one's going to hold me accountable for my sin. So they continue to make peace with their own sins and then it begins to spread around the whole congregation and eventually, like yeast, it has taken over the whole lump. And so he compares the man who is unrepentant in his sin as carrying leaven uh, or or the the sinful nature, the old man. He's bringing it around with him and in verse 8 he says the leaven of malice and evil. That's what he's bringing with him. And so what is it exactly they are to do with such a man? He says at the end of verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. I don't think he means physically being hauled out of the congregation. Gather around all the deacons and just pick him up by his arms and chunk him out on the curb. I don't think that's exactly what they have in mind. A typical Lord's Day in first century, as best we can tell, had something similar, at least, in structure to what we have today. There would be uh, prayers, there would be singing, reading of Scripture, there would be preaching. And those services would often include both believers and non-believers. People that the congregation didn't really know, perhaps were invited guests or what have you, but they were, in other words, not baptized or that the congregation recognized as a believer in Christ. And so after the service, they were more than welcome to sit in and watch and and, uh, observe the ongoings of the church and its worship service. But then at the end of that, they would be dismissed and the church would then commit to more prayer and the taking of the Lord's Supper every single week. That was the regular pattern. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that that person is to be removed from among you with the rest of the unbaptized or otherwise unrepentant people that come in and observe the customs when it comes time to celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I think he confirms this in verses 7 and 8 when he says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil that this man is bringing in, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth that represents the rest of the people that are repentant of their sin, that are ridding themselves of the leaven. And then in verse 11, he recommends further that if someone bears the name of brother, if someone is going to proclaim the name of Christ, and they're going to continue in unrepentant sins, that in spite of warnings they continue in, they don't want to hear then you are, he says, not even to eat with such a one. And I think primarily he's talking about the Lord's Supper, but he leaves it open to the point that the sin could be so rampant and so easily spreadable that the congregation is to completely cut off fellowship with such a person. Not even to have them over at your house. As part of being the people of God... An embassy of the kingdom of heaven, we have a responsibility, a mandate given to us by the Lord to weed out sin. And some were going to hear that and think to themselves, sounds like a witch hunt. And in some very narrow senses, it is, because witches aren't allowed in the kingdom of heaven, they're not. So in the event that there really are witches in your midst, it is the responsibility of the congregation to warn them. Now, people that came out of witchcraft and have repented, people that continue to repent of witchcraft that is a temptation of them, okay, that's fine. People that continue to participate in witchcraft and remain unrepentant in their sins... The church is called to restrict them from the Lord's table. The church is called to break fellowship with them. Because remember the underlying premise of all of our meeting together. That we as a people are claiming that we are the body of Christ. We came forward in membership claiming that the Spirit has changed our heart to a heart of flesh that desires to identify our sin and repent from it that we may live, that we may persevere, that we may make it to the end. So then our desire, what we're saying in membership is that our desire is to weed out sin in our own life. But the plain and simple truth is that I'm sinful enough that I'm not the best person to recognize my own sin. That often... Other people are better at recognizing my own sin than I am. Like my wife. It's easy for her to see my sin. And it's easy for me to see hers. And we point it out to each other. And just like in marriage, there is a a refining quality of marriage that continues to sanctify you. Amen. If you're married, you can testify. For sure. You each kind of rub the rough sinful spots off one another essentially and it's a sanctifying process so to the body of Christ together we are that we see each other's sins we point them out and we're grateful to have somebody looking after our backs so this is a blessing to us If you're truly a regenerate person, it's a blessing to you. It's one of the many ways that the Lord has of bringing awareness of your own sin. Now, why is it that we have this responsibility as a congregation? Why is it that we have this responsibility? Because the obligation for the congregation to purge evil has always been true of God's people. Of God's true congregation... What has always been true since the beginning of time, going all the way back to Moses, purging evil has always been a priority. As I said a few weeks ago, uh, and as Paul says in Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And what that means is that he has Christ has been awarded all the blessings. There is is nothing you can do to outperform Christ. He has already fulfilled all the things that could be promised. And as such, all the blessings promised to humanity through the nation of Israel have come to Him. And because He has joined us into His body, we as His disciples and anyone else for that matter who places their faith in Christ, they receive all the blessings that God has ever promised to humanity that have come to Christ. And He shares them with us, His family. So then in Christ, there is, Paul says, no more Jew or Gentile, There is one people of God united under the new and better Adam, Jesus Christ. He has formed a new humanity in which we now belong. He has included both Jew and Gentile. And so the people of God the people who have believed God would bring about the Messiah and give us redemption, and the people who look back now at Christ and believe that He has brought us redemption, the people of God, New Testament and Old Testament, have always had a responsibility for ridding God's covenant community of unrepentant and over evil. They've always had that charge. Notice that in verse 11, Paul gives this list of people who supposedly bear the name of brother, but who are guilty, he says, of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. And as he's clarifying um, something that he said earlier to them in a letter that we don't have, he he tells them, you know, I said this earlier not to associate with these kind of people and you took it to mean. Uh, just everybody in the world. And he's like, no, that would mean you'd have to go out of the world. He clarifies here that he's talking about people that bear the name of brother. People who claim to know Christ and yet participate in unrepentant sin. And then he says this at the end of verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, why is it? Two things. Why is it that, one, he has selected this list of sins here? Why those And second, why does our English Standard Version and probably most other translations have quotation marks around purge the evil person from among you. Because Paul is actually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, what you'll be struck with over and over again is this constant refrain that Moses keeps reminding the people of. Remember in the book of Deuteronomy that the people are going into the promised land and Moses is preparing them before they actually go into the promised land. And he's commanding them of how they should live, and he's preparing them. And there's this repeated refrain throughout the book where Moses tells them, Purge the evil person from among you. They have to get out unrepentant sin from their midst. In fact, this refrain is repeated directly following where Moses talks about killing people, giving them the death penalty for certain sins that they exhibit, and I bet you won't guess what those sins are, that he brings up things like sexual immorality, specifically adultery and sex outside of marriage, greed and swindling, idolatry, like prophets who are claiming to be from God but are false, people that are drunkards, slanderers that refuse to submit to the authority of the priests. So Paul, and after each one of those, he says, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul has gone back into Deuteronomy regarding the commands that Moses gives to the children of Israel as they go into the land, and he's saying that those things that Moses is saying to the people of God in the Old Testament are as true as much today as they were then. They still apply now. Though it's not the death penalty, it's excommunication from the church. Which, as he defines in 1 Corinthians is handing them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. If that might be a final warning to them, that's a death waiting for you. When I hand you over to Satan, you're about to die and you're going to go to hell for eternity. It's that last warning. You should repent. Paul digs back into Deuteronomy and he says, still true today of God's people, it hasn't changed. It's church discipline and it's necessary. But why is it necessary for us? Because there must be a clear line of distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. There has to be a clear line of distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And we must be abundantly clear about who is inside the family of God and who is out. And Paul even tells us as much in verse 12 and 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? There are those that are outside the body of Christ. What about you judging them? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? It flies all over us. Who are you to judge me? Brother in Christ. That's who. God judges those outside. So, in church discipline and local church membership, what we are doing is we are drawing clear lines of distinction between the people who are repentant believers in Jesus Christ, those who represent the kingdom of God in the world, and those for whom God will judge. One day, And we're making that abundantly clear. It's a line inside and outside. And that line is there first for you. It's first for you. So that you know who your brothers and your sisters are. You know who then you also need to share the gospel with. They are outside, very clearly. They're not members of the church. They are outside the gospel. It also means... That our goal as members are to be accountable for the souls of each person on our membership role. Everybody that we have listed that, that joins us in worship is on our role. And we're responsible for their soul because we have drawn a line of distinction around them. There's been a tendency in previous decades, and it continues to this day, to have names of members on membership role in church that you haven't seen in years. You have no contact with whatsoever. And this has been complete negligence on the part of churches in letting this happen. How can we possibly affirm membership in the body of Christ for someone who we aren't seeing weekly, edifying being edified by the teaching of the word, who we aren't seeing weekly being held accountable to the word that's preached, holding other people accountable, who we're not regularly seeing in worship. Not only is it a sin to not come to church, as the author of Hebrews points out, And it seems to be a sin that they're ignoring and we seem to be ignoring, but we we also can't as a body or as pastors oversee the soul of someone if they aren't here. So membership and discipline in the local church represents a line of clear distinction for us. We're saying these people, we can affirm as best we can tell, exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, And our repentant believers daily walking with the Lord. But it's also a line of inside and out for the rest of the world to see. That in order to follow Christ, pursuit of holiness is important. It's chief among what we're called to do and be is pursuers of holiness. And it's for the world to see, hey, if I'm going to follow Christ, there are real consequences to that. Look at what these people have to give up. My secular hedonistic lifestyle, I can't take with me. I'm going to have to die to it. Is it any wonder that when we stopped practicing church discipline in, the ch- in our churches the gospel also got watered down in the community. Because people were no longer seeing that it actually cost you something to follow Christ. And that the church was willing to do something about it. Namely, hold each other accountable. And trust that you have the undwelling Holy Spirit. And that you're going to respond in repentance to a call for repentance. So therefore, members' meetings for us shouldn't be optional as a member of the body of Christ, who are submitting to His local church. This is your responsibility as one to whom Christ has entrusted the care of the souls in this assembly. That's congregational authority. That's congregational rule. That we independently have the Holy Spirit in us and collectively the Holy Spirit rules among us. So that we make decisions together, that represents heaven's will. And we collectively oversee the souls of the people that are around us. We affirm the faith of those who have who have left the church in member meetings, who, who are joined other churches. We say, yes, we do believe they are Christian, or no, we're not. We determine the best way to allocate the funds of the church so as to maximize the effect of God's money that He has given us to steward. And those are important decisions that the Spirit we trust is guiding us in. So your participation in the local church is essentially taking ownership of the responsibilities that Christ has placed on you as a member of His body. And chief among those responsibilities is to know those, in, those around you inside and out. See, the church isn't a business. Its success and failure isn't contingent on dollars and cents. The call of the church member is to know the souls of the congregation inside and out. That's what makes it different than a business. Congregational authority is not saying that we have the control of the air conditioner and the number of paper clips we buy by majority vote. It's saying we know each other inside and out. And we are entrusted with the care of the souls of those around us. And that we're dedicated to the sanctification of each other. To the discipline of each other. That together we are an, ascent, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And that Christ Christ is in our midst through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And from now until eternity, we need each other so that we may live lives worthy of the life to which we have been called. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together as your body. And we pray that as such, our praise would be genuine. That our desire for your word would be genuine. That our love for the people around us would be genuine. Love even enough to call out sin where we see it. As uncomfortable as that is, we pray for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.